want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are continuing our series in Revelation, looking at this, uh, this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Have you ever found yourself in a hostile place? In May of 2011, it was round three of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Vancouver Canucks were playing against the San Jose Sharks. I had lived in BC for about a decade. In fact, I was born in Vancouver. Uh, when I was a little kid, I even had Vancouver Canucks pajamas, the, the ones with the, the big uh, V on them. Uh, but having lived there for, as, a, as an adult for about 10 years as a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, uh, I had... I had grown to not appreciate Vancouver Canuck fans. I, I'd found them to be largely uh, irritating. Um, and, and I couldn't stomach the idea of the Vancouver Canucks winning the Stanley Cup. Uh, perhaps that makes me a bad Canadian, uh, but so be it. Uh, I ask for, for the grace of any Vancouver Canuck fans who may be with us. Well, it was, it was May of 2011, Stanley Cup playoffs were on, Vancouver was playing San Jose, and I happened to be in Vancouver for a couple days for a course, and uh, I had a free evening, and so I wandered into a, a community pub to watch the game, and uh, I remember uh, walking in there, it was packed with rabid uh, Canuck fans, and I was there cheering for the San Jose Sharks to win, and, and, I, and I realized as I sat there that I would be wise to keep my desire for Vancouver to lose, that I would be wise to cheer only on the inside, not on the outside, uh, because I was in a fairly hostile place. You may recall that when Vancouver uh, did lose in the Stanley Cup final, that uh, some of their fans tried to burn down their city. I was in enemy territory. This morning, we turn our attention to the third of seven letters to the churches in Asia uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, this time to the letter to the church in Pergamum. And whereas in most of the letters, in five of them in fact, Jesus says in those letters, I know your deeds, I know your deeds, I know your deeds. Here he doesn't say I know your deeds, he says I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And a bit later he says where Satan lives. It would seem that the church in Pergamum, that, that these believers are uniquely in enemy territory. They're in hostile territory. Remember, these letters that we are walking through uh, are found in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Literally, Revelation means unveiling, the, the, the revelation. Uh, through these uh, words, through these pages, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true, that there's more going on than we can perceive with our physical eyes. Things are not as they seem. The revelation enables us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future, and it allows us to see the present in light of the unseen realities even of the present. Because of his faith in Jesus, John, the disciple of Jesus, now finds himself in exile on the island of Patmos, a volcanic lump of rock in the Aegean Sea off the coast of modern-day Turkey. On the Lord's Day, John is worshiping Jesus when suddenly he hears behind him a voice like a trumpet, a voice, and he turns to see the voice. And there before him he encounters the resurrected, exalted, glorified Christ, the Jesus that he had followed on earth. 
And Jesus commissions John. He, he says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Faithfully, John does that. He records these messages, these letters to each of seven churches scattered throughout the province of Asia uh, in modern-day Turkey. The year's 96 AD. We find those letters in Revelation 2 and 3. We've all already explored the first two messages, first to the church in Ephesus. There was much that Jesus commended about this church in this place, the city of Ephesus. He commended them for their hard work, for their perseverance, for their orthodoxy. They, they clung to the truth. But we also discovered that not all was right, that something was missing. The central quality, the thing that was to identify them and distinguish them as his people was missing. They had forsaken the love they had at first. And so Jesus rebukes them, calling them to repentance. Repent and do the things you did at first. In the second letter, the letter we looked at last week to the church in Smyrna, we, we discovered that there was no word of rebuke uh, from the exalted Christ, but rather a word of encouragement. They were already suffering, but Jesus tells them that things are about to get worse. And his message to them is, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death. This morning we come to the third letter, the third message that we find in Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. I invite you to follow along as I read. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Here's what I want to do with you in the time we have together this morning. There are three questions that I want to ask as we walk through uh, this passage, this message to the church in Pergamum. First, why does Jesus say that Pergamum is where Satan lives? Why does Jesus say that? Second, what is the threat that this church is facing? And then third, how does Jesus uh, respond to what is going on in Pergamum? What is his word to them and to us? I've noted in the previous several weeks that each of these letters, with the one exception of the last letter, each of these letters includes part of the description of, uh, uh, includes a description of Christ, the exalted Jesus. And that description comes, except for the last letter, that description comes directly from the vision that J John had of the exalted Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Here in this letter, we read, Him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You should recall that in John's vision, that sword is coming from Christ's mouth. Now, this is of great significance, but we're going to pass over it for the moment, but we will return to it later on. At present, what I want to draw our attention to is not the description of Jesus, but rather the description of Pergamum, what we can learn about Pergamum. Uh, question one, why does Jesus say that Pergamum is where Satan lives? 
In addressing the church in Pergamum, Jesus makes these two sobering statements that we've already encountered. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And a bit later, he says, your city where Satan lives. Daryl Johnson writes this, Jesus straightforwardly lays out his assessment of the city of Pergamum. He, he would not have been popular with the Chamber of Commerce or the city council. Your city where Satan has his throne, your city where Satan lives. Now, a few questions may come to mind, like, why does Jesus say this? What exactly does Jesus mean? Uh, one scholar, in reference to these two comments, writes this, This verse seems a little strange, for it mentions that Satan had his throne in the city of Pergamum in Asia Minor. We are accustomed to thinking about Satan as traveling everywhere in the world. Is there really a locality in which Satan himself lives? Does he have an actual throne? How are we to respond to those questions? Well, on, on the one hand, it's important for us to note that Satan is a finite being, and, and unlike God, is not omnipresent. Thus, he is limited and must, uh, therefore, be, be somewhere and not everywhere at any given time. Yet, it, it would be surprising if Satan had limited, him, limited himself to just one specific physical location. To be sure, Satan is a spiritual being, and there is much that we don't understand about the relationship between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. But in the book of Job, we, we read that Satan was roaming throughout the earth. So what exactly does Jesus mean when he says that Satan lives here, that Satan has his throne here? Well, let's consider a few things that we know about Pergamum. Pergamum, Pergamum was another splendid city in Asia Minor, 50 mile, 55 miles due north of Smyrna. It was the next stop on the ancient Roman postal route. Rising 1,000 feet above the plain was an enormous uh, outcropping of rock uh, that culminated with an enormous mesa, a, a flat tabletop, if you will, uh, that had the city on it and, and part, portions of it, in, and it was uh, amazing overlooking the plain. The city was of considerable importance historically, probably of these churches, the most important of the seven churches. Certainly, that was the case for the previous four centuries. Pergamum had been the center of the Adelaide Empire, but when uh, their last king it dominated for 200 years, but then it was bequeathed to Rome by their last king who had no successor, which proved to be an astute move. Pergamum became the seat of government for the Roman province of Asia. Michael Wilcock writes this, if Ephesus was the New York of Asia, Pergamum was its Washington, or we might prefer to say it's Ottawa. Pergamum was famous for its magnificent library, uh, boasting 200,000 parchment scrolls. In fact, the word parchment is derived from the name Pergamum. As a poli the political capital of the Roman province of Asia, Pergamum was the center of the imperial cult or, or center for the worship of the emperor. It was the first city to build a temple to a living emperor, to Augustus, in 29 BC. Smyrna built their temple uh, three years later in 26 BC. But not only was there a temple to Augustus here, to the emperor of Rome, to one of the emperors, but it also boasted of several other significant temples. One was the temple to the greatest of all Greek gods in the Greek pantheon, uh, that is Zeus, who was called Zeus the Savior. 
The altar to Zeus was actually cut into the rock. It, it sat on an 18-foot-high platform cut into the rock, 800 feet up this rock outcrop on which Pergamum rested. Uh, Daryl Johnson writes, every person in Pergamum lived in the shadow of this altar. In fact, some scholars believe that this reference to Satan's throne is actually a reference to the altar of Zeus uh, that was quite imposing, that looked like a chair in some ways or a step. But there was another temple in Pergamum as well of significance dedicated to the worship of the god Ashlepius, uh, who was thought to be the god of healing. The symbol for Ashlepius, interestingly, is that of a serpent. Does that remind you of anything? The priests of Ashlepius even used snakes in their healing rituals. William Barclay writes this, Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple were tame snakes. In the night, sufferers might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it slid over the ground on which he lay. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself. And the touch was held to bring healing, health and healing. People flocked to Pergamum, to the temple of Aslepius for healing. They came from across the empire to receive the touch of the serpent rather than the touch of the living God who alone can heal. So, so why does Jesus say that Pergamum is where Satan lives, that Pergamum is where Satan has his throne? Is it because this was the center of imperial worship, the worship of human emperors? Is it because of the worship of Zeus and this great imposing altar? Is it because of the worship, worship of Aslepius and, and all that, that entailed? Gordon Fee uh, suggests that perhaps it was the cumulative effect of all of that that led to this comment, these comments from Jesus. I, I like what Daryl Johnson writes. He says this, In every way, Pergamum was a center for ideas that blinded people to the truth. To the truth about God, about the world, about themselves. While the average tourist was blissfully taking pictures of all the expressions of idolatry, Jesus grieved. In his message, he is saying that in that particular place, the evil one had some major victories. The one Jesus called the deceiver had the mind of the whole city, from politics to medicine to religion. In Pergamum, the deceiver, Satan, the father of lies, had captured the minds of the city. His influence in the thinking of the people of Pergamum was substantive indeed. This was enemy territory for those who were in Christ. Which leads us to the second question. What is the threat that this church faces? Well, from what we've just discovered, the answer seems obvious. The church lives in the midst of a battle zone. It, 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 a battle for the minds of men and women. A, a battle over truth. John Stott writes, Here, a pitched battle was being fought in which the combatants were not people but ideas. The issue was not between good and evil, but between truth and error. These believers live in a city that is zealously engaged in false worship. Worship of human emperors. A worship of pagan gods like Zeus and Aslepius and others. But that, of course, uh, though perhaps unique in some of the particulars, is not in a general sense unique to Pergamum. There was emperor worship and worship of false gods all throughout the empire. There is something more going on here. Look with me at the text at what Jesus says. 
He says, in spite of the fact that this is where Satan has his throne, despite the fact that this is where Satan lives, he says this, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Anipus, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Here we find words of commendation. Jesus says, yet you remain true to my name. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me. There are within these statements uh, two commendations. First, Jesus affirms the fact that these believers have remained true to his name. In the ancient world, and we see this throughout Scripture, uh, a person's name was not simply a label. It carried with it all that, that, all that, that who that person was, their, their identity, their character. It was, it was who they were. To be faithful to the name of Christ is to be faithful to the, the fullness of who Christ is. Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, they remain true to me, to who I am, to what is true about me. They held firmly to their conviction that he alone was Lord, that he alone was Savior, not Caesar, not Augustus, that he alone was worthy of worship, not any emperor or human king or pagan god. Only Christ was Lord, only Christ was Savior, only Christ was worthy of their worship. They remain true his name. Second, Jesus affirms the fact that even in very difficult days, the church in Pergamum remained faithful to him. Even in the days of Antipas, he says. Now we know almost nothing about Antipas beyond what we read here in this text, but it's not difficult to reconstruct some of what must have happened. Evidently, Antipas was a member of this church, a disciple of Jesus, perhaps a leader in this church, likely brought before Roman uh, political leaders called, challenged to participate in worship of the emperor, worship of that city. You can imagine the pressure he would have been under to give way. All he had to do was throw some incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. Just say it and your life will be spared. But Antipas would not capitulate. He had confessed Jesus as Lord. He'd confessed Jesus as Savior. He was a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and he would not bend. He remained firm to the end. He was put to death. And we know from our letter here that he was the first and so far the only member of the church in Pergamum to lose his life for the sake of Christ. Tradition says that he was roasted to death in a brazen bowl. And that would have not only put pressure on him in those moments when he was called to worship the emperor, but it would have put pressure on the church. And Jesus says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Daryl Johnson writes this about the church in Pergamum, that there even was a church in that city is a testimony to the power of the gospel. The church in Pergamum faced a great threat, and they held fast. They held firm. They remained true. But there was another threat. There was a greater threat. Not only the threat from outside the church, but there is, we discover, also a threat from within the church. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Jesus speaks these words, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Quick aside, 
We first encountered the Nicolaitans back into the letter to the church in Ephesus where we read these words on the lips of Jesus. But uh, right after he had given his word of rebuke to the, the believers in Ephesus that you have first, I have this against you, you have forsaken your first love, you no longer love like you did. Jesus says this, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here we encounter the Nicolaitans again. Now we don't know uh, much for certain about the Nicolaitans, who they were, what they taught, beyond what I think we can glean from this letter and the next, the letter to the church in Thyatira that we'll look at next week. Almost certain, and this is the premise that I will operate with this morning, the the Balaamites who we encounter here, those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, are in fact the same as the Nicolaitans, or at least they, they are teaching the same things. That, that is, uh, those who hold to the teachings of Balaam, namely the Nicolaitans, or, or perhaps they're two groups, but, but essentially what they are holding to, what they are teaching, are the same ideas. So that's the premise that I'm going to operate with. I believe that is a, a realistic and good conclusion to come to. So with these words, Jesus uh, Jesus is referencing a story as he speaks about Balaam and Balak and, and these events that we read in verse 14 and 15. Jesus is referencing a story that we encounter in the Old Testament book of Numbers. Balak was the king of Moab, and he tried to hire Balaam to curse Israel, but Balaam uh, ends up not cursing Israel, but speaking words of blessing over them. And then in his defense, when Balak gets mad at him, he says, I can only speak the words that, that the Lord gives me. And so he ends up blessing them over and over and over again and never cursing them as Balak wants. But what becomes evident from the text is that, that unable to curse them, Balaam gives Balak some shrewd advice advising Balak, the king of Moab, to seek to entice the Israelites into worship of Moabite gods. And so we read this in Numbers 25, 1, and the first part of 2. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. Balaam's not able to curse them, but he says, hey, if you get them to do this, uh, that will cause problems for them. And indeed it does. 24,000 Israelites are killed in a plague at God's judgment upon them for engaging in idol worship and sexual immorality. Now, here's something I want you to understand. We, we need to understand this. And I'll say more about this. We'll unpack it a little bit more fully next Sunday uh, when we look at the letter to the church in Thyatira because there's some similar things going on there. In the ancient world, idolatry, the worship of false gods, and sexual immorality went together, hand in glove. Uh, They were deeply intertwined. Uh, That's what what is going on in the book of Exodus, in the golden calf incident. Uh, In Exodus 32.6, we read this. So the next day, the people rose early. This is after Aaron had formed a golden calf. They rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That is, they got up to indulge in sexual play. That's what's going on in, ex- in, in this passage in Exodus at the golden calf. The worship of idols was, uh, had sexual immorality as part of the worship rituals. Those things were deeply connected. And so feasting at the table of an idol and sexual immorality are linked. They go together. And evidently, that's, uh, that's a problem that plagued the, the Gentile church. Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, is addressing precisely this issue. And so we'll look at it in a little bit more detail next week. 
But we need to understand that idolatry, the worship of these pagan idols, these pagan gods, and sexual immorality were deeply linked in the ancient world. And so in the world of Pergamum, people, uh, here's what we need to understand, people in that city would uh, gather at a temple and there would be an animal offered as a sacrifice. Much of the meat would be given back to the worshipers so that they could enjoy a feast and there would often be sexual uh, acting out of some kind that would be a part of that. When people in Pergamum became Christians and became followers of Jesus, they faced a dilemma. Their friends, their family members would invite them to a feast. And now they had to determine, should they go? Could they continue to participate in the social life of the city? Even though they didn't believe in these gods, could they participate? And part of what we also need to understand is just the sexuality, the attitude towards sexuality in the ancient world. In fact, one ancient writer, just to give us a sense of their, uh, their understanding... Uh, Here's what one ancient writer writes. We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately. Uh, The ancient world's attitudes towards sexuality were radically different than the biblical sexual ethic. So evidently what is going on in Pergamum is that there are some in the church who are teaching who are holding to, who are believing that it was okay for Christians to continue to be involved in some of these things because, you know, it's just an idol. It's not a real God, and it's just, it's just sex. It's just a physical thing. That, that's what the Corinthians argue, and we'll look at that in more detail next week. So they were eating meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. They were engaged in sexual intercourse outside the bonds of one man, one woman in the context of covenant, the covenant of marriage. And there are some in the church who are teaching that this is okay. And so the church faces threats. Not only the threat from outside, but also a threat from inside. Truth is under attack. Trojan horse, if you will, has been slipped into the church in Pergamum. And that brings us to the third question. How does Jesus respond to this church? What does Jesus say to them? And what is Jesus saying to you and to me? Jesus is not okay with the situation in Pergamum. He is not okay with what's going on in this church. He will not tolerate compromise. Here we see Jesus passionately intolerant. He says this, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will not stand by as the truth is compromised within his bride, within the church. Now, not all have bought this, but all have allowed this to go on. All are turning a blind eye as some are teaching this and some are holding to this. And Jesus says, no, repent. And why is Jesus so intolerant of tolerance? Because the truth matters. Because truth matters. Because lies enslave. Because lies lead people astray, lies hold people in bondage. Truth sets us free. Jesus has come to set us free. See, Satan whose throne is in Pergamum, Satan who lives in Pergamum, he is the deceiver is how Scripture describes him. He is the father of all lies. And he has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. As we will see clearly as we walk our way through the revelation, Satan is furious and he's taking out his wrath on humanity against God's creation. And he wants to drag as many people down with him as he can. He knows that he is defeated. 
and yet he rages. And so he seeks to deceive, he seeks to lie, he seeks to see humanity in bondage to lies, to things that simply are not true. Why is Jesus not tolerant to tolerance? Because Jesus cares for our freedom. Because Jesus loves his creations. He loves us. And so he will not tolerate falsehood in the church. He will fight for the truth. He will fight for the minds of men and women, young and old, that they might know the truth, that they might know him who is the truth. Jesus says if they do not repent, if they do not turn from the lies, if they do not confront this false teaching in their midst, that Jesus will come and fight against them with the sword of his tongue. You will recall earlier we talked about the description of Christ as the one with the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. What is significant about that description of Christ here in this letter to the church in Pergamum where Satan lives? The Word of God is said to be the sword of the Spirit. It is, if you will, the one offensive weapon that we have as believers. Ephesians 6 speaks about the armor that we are to put on. And the one offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God's truth, God's Scripture, God's Word. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible, God's Word, has many sword-like qualities. John Stott writes this, It pricks the conscience. It wounds the pride of sinners. It cuts away our camouflage and pierces our defenses. It lays bare our sin and our need. And it kills all false doctrine by its deft, sharp thrusts. Christ comes to fight for the truth in His church. He fights for the minds of His people. He comes to fight against the lies of the enemy with his word. The truth of who he is. And the the truth of all that that entails. If you are with us this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, maybe you've just tuned in because you're curious or you're anxious about what's going on in our world, I want to speak to you for a moment. I want to say to you that Jesus, who loves you, the God who made you, is fighting for your mind. He's fighting for your life. He cares too deeply to leave you believing lies. He cares too deeply to leave you lost and in bondage to deception. According to the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What that means is that the beginning of wisdom about about what is true in life, about who God is and about who we are, begins with, with understanding who God is and who we are. That we might have knowledge apart from God, but if we want wisdom, we need to understand who God is, the one who made us, that he made us to know him, to love him, to live in relationship with him. And we need to know that apart from him, that we have rebelled, that we, we are separated from him, and that we, he has come, Jesus has come to rescue us, to bring us into relationship, to restore what was lost. And unless we understand those realities about God in us, we will go through life without what the Bible calls wisdom. The Bible, I want to contend to you, 
make sense of the world we live in. The Bible makes sense of the experiences we encounter in life, both good and bad. The Bible reveals what is really real, what is really true. The Bible reveals the truth. The Bible reveals Jesus Christ who loves you and gave his life for you. And so maybe you're here and you have more questions than answers, but if you have never repented and put your faith in Christ, I want to challenge you this morning to seek the truth, to seek Jesus, to read this book, and Jesus will reveal himself to you. As you come to it, just even say a prayer, God, if you are real, show me yourself. Open my eyes to see. Open my ears to hear your voice. Show me what is really real. Show me the truth. Jesus, show me yourself. If you are here and you don't know Christ, I urge you to do that. Seek him in his word. Read this book. There is a battle going on right now for your mind. Seek him in his word. Let me speak to those of you who, like me, have already put our faith in Jesus. We are His disciples. I want to say to us, truth matters. Truth is of great, great importance. It matters to Jesus. Jesus came to fight for the truth, to fight for the minds of His people in Pergamum. And it matters to us And it is in the Word of God that we encounter the truth of God, the truth about God, the truth about us. And so I want to ask a question, not to induce guilt, but perhaps a question that will bring conviction to you. We are, as followers of Christ, as those who put our faith in Christ, we are to be people of the book, people of His Word. And so my question is this, are you seeking Jesus? Are you seeking the truth in His Word? Are you hungering and thirsting for Christ? Are you opening His Word and filling your mind with His truth? Filling your heart with the truth of Christ? Are we people of the book? If your answer is no, if the truth is that your Bible is sitting somewhere you're not even sure where, collecting dust, that there's more days that you don't open it than there are days when you do open it, I want to challenge you. There is a battle going on for your mind. The truth matters. There is an enemy who seeks to deceive you and deceive me. Satan wants to lead us astray. Satan wants to lead us into compromise like was happening in Pergamum. He wants to lead us away from the truth. He wants to lead us away from Jesus. And his attacks at times can come in incredibly subtle ways. Daryl Johnson says this, sometimes it is harder to be a faithful disciple in a country with a Christian veneer than it is in a country that militantly opposes Jesus and his ways. I think those are important words for us to reflect on. And I want to challenge each and every one of us to be students of the word, that we would seek Jesus in his word, that we would seek the truth not as, as something on a checklist that we have to, to check off, read my Bible, I did that, I jumped through that hoop. This has nothing to do, understand this, nothing to do with earning or, or meriting Christ's acceptance, no, but because we have been redeemed freely by grace through faith in Christ, through His sin-atoning death for us. He has paid the price for our sin. He has clothed us with His righteousness. He has adopted us. We are children of the Father. 
And as such, we need to guard our minds. We need to seek the truth because there is a battle that rages. We need the truth. We need to to seek the truth, cling to the truth, proclaim the truth to ourselves and to one another. We need to be students of the Word. Not, Not so that we merit anything. We need to understand that Christ's death for us, that God's work of redemption was not to redeem us so that we could just do whatever we want. No, it was to restore what was lost. It was to shape you and me to be uh, men and women who reflect the character of God. He created us to be His image bearers, to show the world what God is like. And so we need the truth. We need to saturate our minds and our hearts with the truth. Now, real quickly, just want to look at Christ's promise to the church here. The end of the text. Jesus says this, To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only by the one who receives it. Jesus promises a reward, but what is it? What, what does this mean? Hidden manna, a white stone with a secret name? Uh, the reality is, at some level, this is pure exegetical guesswork. We, we, don't, we don't know for certain, but, but let me say a few things that, that I think we can uh, safely deduce. This reward is likely, I would suggest, pointing us to uh, Jesus as the bread of life. In the wilderness, God provided bread for His people. In the wilderness, in the New Testament, in Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus provided bread in the wilderness. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is the one that nourishes us. He is the one that sustains us. He is the one that gives us life. He is the bread of life. And here we need to know that in the ancient world, white stones were used for numerous things, but one of the things that they were used for was kind of a token of admission, if you will, to a festival or to celebration or special banquets. And taken together, I would suggest that here this reward that Jesus is offering, hidden manna and a white stone with your name, is, if you will, it's admission to that eschatological wedding feast of the Lamb. This is Jesus promising to those who are victorious that they will eat with Him one day at a feast. Not an idol feast. Not the feasts that are going on in Pergamum, but the feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. They will enjoy that in glory with Him. In conclusion, let me say this. We need to grasp and understand that there is a battle that rages. That so long as we live in this world, there is a battle going on. We are in hostile territory. There's a battle for our minds, a battle over truth. And the enemy is real and he wants to lead us astray. He wants to lead us to compromise. He wants to lead us away from the truth. He wants to lead us away from Christ. And we face a threat, not only an external threat, but the threat inside the context of the church to compromise over truth. And so... We need to ask ourselves, what are the areas in my life, in your life, where I am tempted to compromise? Am I seeking diligently the truth, the truth of Christ, the truth in Christ, that it might shape my life? Do we recognize that the enemy of our soul is seeking to lead us astray? Are we failing to spend time in the Word seeking Jesus, seeking the truth? If we are to discern the lies of the enemy, if we are to discern error, we must be people of the Word. We must 
read it. We must study it. We must meditate on it. Not in order that we would be saved, but in order that we would know the truth because the truth will set us free. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.